Welcome to another episode of Canon Calls. I'm your host, Jake McAtee, and this week is a very special week where I get to have a guest on that I've been waiting to have on for quite some time. His father was the first interview I ever did for this podcast named David Crystal. This week, I am interviewing Ben Crystal, who is an actor, author, producer, and explorer of original practices in Shakespeare rehearsal and production. We talk about his book, Shakespeare on Toast, which you can find anywhere you get your books. Make sure to stick around for the end where Caleb will put in a little clip that me and Ben mentioned will be placed after the episode. Without further ado, meet Ben Crystal. Now welcoming on special guest, Mr. Ben Crystal, who is an author of several books on Shakespeare, and he's an actor and a director. Are you a producer as well? Am I missing anything? <laughs> hey, Jake. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, I guess I list myself on my website as a, an actor, an author, a creative producer, an educator, a workshop leader, a bringer of the bard to the world in a good way, <laughs> I hope. Um, a multi-talented, shiny thing, um, my mom might say, but certainly when I was in drama school, I went to a workshop that was run by all sorts of great and good actors. And they said, if, if you want one bit of advice, they said to us all, all, all the students from different drama schools, they said, don't sit at home and wait for the phone to ring. You know, make your own work, create your own career. And I, I took that idea and, and really ran with it. And I guess everything that I do feeds in some way back to theater and acting or comes from it. But, uh, but yeah, there, there, there are multiple plates spinning at one time. That's the way to do it. Yeah, I think so. This is a, uh, I was mentioning to you right before we started, this is sort of a pillar moment for Canon Calls because your dad was the first interview that I ever did. It's tough for me to listen to, but uh, in terms of my, <laughs> my own interviewing skills, but as I mentioned, your dad was super kind, full of grace, and, and he worked with the, the hand that he was dealt. So it's an wow. honor to have you That's as well. Oh, that's that's really nourishing to hear, and I'm, I'm, I know he'll be tickled to to hear from you, <laughs> and to hear that uh, that memory. So, thank you. Yeah, it's it's a it's a pleasure to be here with you, Ben. I discovered your work in my senior year of college. A professor had okay. had mentioned something about um, original pronunciation, and he uh, he very bravely and courageously attempted it, and it was great. And I thought I'll go check it out. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I think probably. By the next week, I had finished anything I could find on on the internet that you had done. So I am a huge fan of your work. And of course, I mentioned obviously your father's. I mentioned before we started, we, I want to assume that most folks that are listening are not necessarily immediate partakers of Shakespeare. This is not necessarily part of their lives in any way. And to be honest, it probably gives them bad memories only. So... Mm -hmm. I thought you would be a great person to talk with, as you mentioned, a bringer of the bar to folks. Can you at least start with maybe your conversion moment? As I understand it, you didn't always love Shakespeare. Yeah, absolutely. I resonate very, very much so with, with that feeling uh, that you described might, might be sitting in the hearts of, of some of your listeners out there. I hated Shakespeare in school. I couldn't stand it. I was taught it like a lot of people were in the 20th century, I suppose, and still are today, you are handed a book and uh, you might be asked to stand up behind your desk and read sections of it out loud. <laughs> and if you 
are courageous enough to ask, why are these people speaking in poetry? Then you might get the answer. Uh, they're speaking in iambic pentameter, and iambic pentameter is a line of poetry that has a de dum de dum de dum de dum de dum rhythm. And and then you swing towards the literary critical tools that English literature classes teach you to break open works like Austin and Dickens and all great prosaic forms of literature. And I recognize now that one of the reasons that I struggled with Shakespeare in school is because I there was an innate part of me, I feel, that knew that the tools I was being given for the job didn't fit. And that went through my mid-teens to my early teens, through from Macbeth to Lear over high school. <laughs> and and then I got cast as Ariel in The Tempest. I'd been playing in the high school musicals and I didn't particularly have a, a great singing voice, but I, I was, I think that this show playing in Oliver and I was playing like five different character roles. You know, I came on as a young boy and then came off stage and then came on as an old man. And, and um, I was invited afterwards by a director who was setting up a repertory company at the New Art Center to come and audition for The Tempest. And I said, no, I don't like Shakespeare. I'm not coming. But I did. And she cast me as Ariel, the spirit of the air. And I enjoyed rehearsals. And I, I, I was just, thanks to uh, a combination of my father and, and my poetry teacher, English teacher, different, different English literature class from the Shakespeare, I was starting to get my head around why poetry could be a, a beautiful and nourishing and great thing to have in your life. So the, the way that Ariel expressed himself was becoming exciting, but nothing clicked into place as loudly or resoundedly as the moment when after weeks of rehearsals, and heaven knows that rehearsing a comedy stops being funny very quickly without an audience, but when that audience clicked into place is the other half, the missing half, the half that had been missing in the school too when they'd been reading it in the book and on the page, and the show, or the play rather, came alive. That was my, that was my road to Damascus moment. I suppose that was my catching a wave on a surfboard for the first time, and I was like, "Oh, this, this is what it's about. I get it now." And I've never ever wanted to do anything else ever since. So a major through line of that story, and then your other work is the. A lot of folks have this feeling about Shakespeare because of the sort of the anemic way we go about it in terms of merely reading it. I mean, even you mentioned maybe the risk of reading it out loud, but I feel like. I probably didn't say words out loud in Shakespeare till, you know, late in college after, you know, reading them in high school and everything else. It was all trapped in my head. I don't get it. Is that uh, resonate with you? Is that right? Yeah. Well, I'd, I'd want to caveat that because the only way to make these works live and, and not all of poetry, of course, but a lot of poetry really doesn't come alive until it's spoken out loud with heart. And I, I feel that the, the distinction is this, there's as Teenagers were introduced to Shakespeare as often as we've got this ancestral or uh, ephemeral idea that that it's important and that it's it has a lot of mass to it and 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 it should be you know you should have care with it for some reason. But then you're handed this book and you're told to stand up and read it out loud. It's a bit, I mean, for me, it's a bit like being handed the keys to a Ferrari before I've learned to drive and said, "Go on, drive it." <laughs> well, I, I don't, I, I don't know how to drive a car, or, or you know, like handed the score of of Mozart's Requiem the first day that you're learning how to play an instrument and saying, "Go on, play it." 
Well, no, like these, these are plays. They're not reads. They are, they were uh, written for a finite group of craftsmen because women weren't allowed to perform back in Shakespeare's day in, in England at any rate that trained all of their lives to understand how to lift these words off the page and make the images that they are the ingredients for essentially sparkle in the, in the mind's eye of, of the listening audience. And uh, they were also never handed full copies of the plays. They only had their parts, their words. Oh, wow. So they're not equaling being overwhelmed by this massive work, just like a trombone player does not carry around the other 71 parts of, of an orchestra. <laughs> they just focus on their own. Right. So we're, they are supposed to be read out loud, but we are setting our younglings up for a fall because they're not being introduced to Shakespeare in the arena of play where you can come to grips and to terms with the characters and the situations and the themes by, by playing with them. We are handing them the ingredients to a very complicated recipe and, and not really offering them the, 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 the appropriate scaffolding to, to be able to help them create something magical from that. And I, I think that's the, the, the problem. Like if you have an issue with Shakespeare, if you're listening out there and you're afraid of it, the best thing you can possibly do is pick up the book of sonnets he wrote, find one that for some reason clicks to you and dare to speak it out loud and dare to speak it to someone and speak it as if those are your words spoken from your heart and you're trying to convey a message to, to the person you're speaking to. But that's a world away from act one, scene, whatever, right. enter King Duncan, Ben, stand up and read this speech, please. You say this halfway through your book, Shakespeare on Toast. You say, everything we've looked at so far are the doors and the windows to the house of Shakespeare. The foundation of it all, though, is poetry. Understand mm -hmm. how iambic pentameter works and you can talk to Shakespeare. I mean it. You can have a conversation with him. End quote. Ben, <laughs> now, Ben, is that the overstatement of the year or, or, is, that, do you, that, or is that right? You know, it's uh, there's always a shiver that goes through an author when uh, a quote they're quoted back to me like, oh no, what did I write? Oh no, please let it be good. <laughs> but I stand by it. Okay, I awesome. tell us about stand it. By it. Tell us about well, it. Well, so uh, my English teacher would have said to me, and maybe to many of you out there, uh, a line of iambic pentameter is a line of poetry that has a, a particular rhythm to it, and that rhythm is. A the dum the dum the dum the dum the dum rhythm. Now it wasn't Shakespeare's idea to give his characters this style of poetry to speak what they had to speak. It was Marlowe's. It was the guy who was Shakespeare before Shakespeare, and he noticed that that the dum the dum the dum the dum the dum rhythm, as well as being a, a popular style of writing, it was it's the rhythm that close, most closely resembles the natural rhythm of spoken English. I, I dropped my phone and cracked my screen today. I stay in talks to, to people about Shakespeare, and it's usually, oh, no, especially if it's in a school. You know? I say, no, 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 <laughs> listen to the rhythm of it. I dropped my phone and cracked the screen today. Da, 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 da. If you are a speaker of English, especially if it's your first language, you will naturally have this rhythm in your speech. And Marlowe realized that if he gave his characters, because no one speaks poetry naturally in life, unless you're incredibly, incredibly talented. 
he realized that if he gave his characters poetry to speak, but in this rhythm, then they would sound heightened because nobody naturally speaks poetry, but they would also sound like us. They have the rhythm of us. And whether you recognize it or not, whether it's conscious or subconscious, that you, it's, it's a rhythm that pervades our life. I mean, it's the rhythm of your heart as well. Da, 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 da. So it is, as they call it, the heartbeat of the English language. So Marlowe, if you were to look at the rhythm of some of his speeches, they go like this. And on and on and on. And they call it Marlowe's immortal, mighty line. You know, he was relentless in being able to pound out this incredibly strong rhythmical poetry. And Shakespeare, who grew up as a young playwright under Marlowe's wing, and it's understood that his, uh, Shakespeare's earliest plays, like Henry VI's plays and that sort of thing, were writ- co-written with Marlowe. Shakespeare took this idea and ran with it. So a Shakespeare speech would go, uh, the rhythm of it would go like this. And everyone, the <laughs> actors, the audience, everyone's head whips across and goes, what was the DD? What's that A rhythm that suddenly is a peak, as it were, sticking out of the regularity? And that's the basic tenet of Shakespeare's poetic and metrical brilliance, is that he recognized he could manipulate the rhythm of the poetry to indicate, well, what? And what we've realized is that that A rhythm, that DD in the middle of a bunch of D-Duns, is the rhythm lands underneath a word that is particularly resonant to the character. So the more regular a rhythm the character's uh, poetry might have when they're saying something, the more regular and ease of mind they have, and heart, of course. And the more irregular it is, the more agitated and upset they might be. And so now you're talking about a poet playwright who is examining again and again and again over the course of 20 years and a whole widespread of themes and characters and stories, examining and re-examining the human condition, manipulating the poet, the favored poetic style of the time to essentially reflect and refract the human heart and heartbeat and indeed the pulse of his characters. So if you are looking to add a speech of, let's say, Macbeth or, or Hamlet's or whatever, and, and it is clearly not a speech of 36 lines of de-dum-de-dum-de-dum or whatever, and you start asking the questions, well, why is this particular line or these particular words, why do they have an odd rhythm? Or uh, uh, whereas these words have a regular rhythm, you need to come up with an answer. Otherwise, you know, you're not doing your work as an actor or a producer or, or a director or whatever. And then you realize that it makes sense, considering where the character's head or, or heart is at that point in the play, for them to be particularly agitated. Let's say Hamlet's just seen the ghost of his father. And he says, oh, all you host of heaven, oh, earth, what else? And shall I couple hell? Oh, fie, fie, hold, hold my heart. And you, my sinews, grow not instant old and bear me stiffly up. That beginning bit is quite jagged, and then it gets more, more, more smooth, right? And you, my sinews, grow not instant old and bear me stiffly up. So there's, a, there's an irregularity as he recovers from seeing the ghost. And then a regularity as he gets into what, what he's thinking and feeling about. That's direction from Shakespeare. 
that's a conversation with a 400-year-dead playwright that is guiding you towards, well, not how to do the part, because, of course, the miracle of Shakespeare is that he leaves his characters a shell, that he leaves so much room for you to pour as much of yourself as you, as you dare to. But he is offering, whichever way you'd like to put it, either the scaffolding for, for you to build that house, or the, uh, he's offering the gilded gold, beautiful frame, uh, but the ca- a blank canvas for you to paint that character onto. Or, or yeah, indeed, as I say in the book, the, the most stable foundation on which to build. That, of course, you can ignore if you choose to, but my argument is certainly uh, to persevere and to explore what Shakespeare has offered us before we, we throw it away and, and, and do what we feel might be best, to listen to that playwright, because he, he does seem to know what he was doing. One of the things that always frustrated me in class was was I would hear very vaulted praise for Shakespeare, and, and there was always a question of, like, I'm not really sure why, I mean, it may be true, but I'm not really sure why. I remember opening up, we, we were assigned Harold Bloom's book, I forget what it's oh, called sure. now. Poem Unlimited. Poem Unlimited, Maybe. I think it was, no, 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 it was about Shakespeare, it was uh, the first human, or it was about, uh, essentially, the thesis was Shakespeare made the first humans, I believe. Okay. Anyway, it was, which was, I thought, a, a fantastic thesis, but I would get to things mm-hmm. like his Hamlet chapter, and I started to know that, notice this about literary critics at times where they're just not telling me anything, or they're just not saying <laughs> anything about it other than there's a mystery here and that's what we love, and, and it was just not enough for me to get my handles on. And there were two authors, and you were one of them in particular, that started to unpack ways in which, like you were just discussing, like the content is phenomenal. But also, Shakespeare has so much intentionality with the medium that really lend itself to reasons that we might actually still be performing this or having podcast episodes about it. So as you were mentioning, that's the sort of emotional capacity that he's sort of putting in just to the medium alone, just to the meter. One of the other things that I think is really powerful that you talk about is sort of stage direction as well, and maybe like dialogue direction or how you would talk about it. But you mentioned in, in terms of this iambic pentameter, he's also telling his actors when to go. Can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. You mean when to exit? Exit, sorry. When to... Uh, so I have in mind, I've seen you talk about, in particular, uh, the scene of Macbeth where you, you have your actors sort of on this metronome in their mind of the D-dumps, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then them being able to, to know when they speak in reference to the other actor. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Well, um, there's all sorts of different tricks and techniques that I don't believe Shakespeare invented, but that he relied on and became such tools of his trade that, uh, that I suppose he, he was a big part in cementing them as as uh, writing devices for the theater like for example a rhyming couplet a rhyming couplet is usually an indication that a character is making moves to exit interesting and it can be in some of the plays an indication that a character is coming to the end of a big speech because of course you know you need these cues if you don't have a whole copy of the play to your hand which which the actors didn't and the uh, the rhyming couplets would be a, a sort of an alert signal to those backstage to prepare for the next scene, or, or to the other actors on stage that the, the the lead protagonist was was coming to an end. And then the detective work, I suppose, comes when you're not looking at speeches, but you're looking at dialogue, because these fright he's essentially 
breaking up the poetry, or let's say a line of poetry, and splitting it between two or more speakers, and essentially cutting up the poetry to create fast dialogue. It's something the Greeks called stichomythia, and ma- manipulating that that jazz freeform idea that he took from Marlowe even further. So he starts it with. Uh, you see it in Romeo and Juliet when they share their first kiss, and um, Romeo, sin from my lips, or trespass sweetly took, you kiss by the book, says Juliet. Oh, trespass sweetly took, you kiss by the book, is one line of poetry, but it's split over two characters. And the idea is that in order to keep that rhythm going, you need to come in on cue. You need to come in really, really fast. You need to pick up your cues. And then you flash forward 15 years later to the, the scene just after Macbeth killed Duncan. And, in Macbeth, and he's speaking with Lady Macbeth, and uh, she says, "I heard the owl scream and the cricket cry. Did not you speak?" And he says, "When?" She says, "Now." He says, "As I descended, as I came downstairs." And she says, "I." And that is one line of iambic pentameter split over like four or five conversational turns. Now, you can use your natural instinct, which is to build in lots of pauses after each one. That, uh, that it's not a line of poetry, that these are separate lines of, of prose, and that there's no guidance or structural or rhythm to, towards how to, how to speak it. But then that doesn't make much sense, right? If you've got lots of gaps around, did not you speak? When? Now. <laughs> right. As I descended, I. Like, I mean, there's, it's, you couldn't make it work because we can make anything work with enough tension and atmosphere. But did not you speak? When? Now. As I descended, I is the kind of rapid-fire exchange that you might expect from people in a very heightened and anxious state. And so I suppose there is all sorts of direction that you can take from the way that Shakespeare manipulated uh, this particular poetic style. And and I suppose, again, you know, the more fragmented it is, arguably, the, the, the higher state of of tension or, uh, or drama or conflict between the, the speakers. I want to, at the very end of this, I'm going to put in for folks, you sort of illustrate this idea of, you know, filling out that whole line with their dialogue firing back and forth and the, the options there. And then I mentioned to you, one of the things, my favorite moments that I've seen you do is, is layering the end of Hamlet. Oh yeah. Right. The, I call it verse overlap. Verse um, overlap. And, I think, and musicians call it counterpoint. Just when, when multiple instruments are essentially playing at the same time. And uh, I've looked at it in scenes of Macbeth and in Lear, but I first stumbled on the idea for myself anyway. And uh, I'm sure there are people out there who have explored such things before. Uh, when I was uh, working on a production of Hamlet in Reno, Nevada, in fact, it was the first original pronunciation production of, of Hamlet for 400 years. And we were working the funeral scene where uh, they're burying Ophelia and Laertes is mourning over his sister and Hamlet in many productions, bursts in. It is I, Hamlet the Dane, and they have a fight in the grave there. Right. 40,000 brothers could not, with all their quantity of love, undo my son. What was thou do for her? All that kind of thing. And uh, we were really struggling with the rehearsal because here am I as, as Hamlet, like foot down and, and ready to go. And there is Laertes, foot down and ready to go. But every now and again, a lord or Gertrude or Claudius has a, a line that goes, Hamlet, or my lord, or that sort of thing. And it wasn't the actor's fault that they are naturally at a different rhythm from two folk, two, two folk who are being held back from fighting each other. 
if they're being held back, of course. But it's 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 a difficult line to to squeeze in in the middle of of, of a tirade, as it were. And I went back and looked at the meter and, and, and as it were, the gaps in the meter. So the lines where a line from a character might be the dum rather than the full da dum da dum da dum da dum And I realized that there was a way to precisely and accurately fill in the gaps that were left by Hamlet and Laertes railing each other with the lines the little my lords and Hamlet, Hamlet, and that sort of thing of Gertrude and, and Claudius and the lords. That made entire sense. And in fact, those gaps happened at points in Hamlet or Laity's speeches that, from a, a motivational point of view, would invite those characters to, to you know, Claudius and, and, and Gertrude to speak that way. And we, I, I reframed it on a, a PDF and brought it to rehearsal. And we tried it, and the scene just lifted into the air because suddenly it was cacophony and it was chaos. And of course, it, just throwing in cacophony and chaos throughout Shakespeare is, is like throwing in toilet jokes. You know, if you can't make the scene work, let's just make a cheap gag. Or if you can't make the scene work, let's just have it be crazy. But because <laughs> it was a fight already, because it was a heightened state of conflict, it seemed to almost to ask for it. And it, it was, it's, it's a, revel, a relatively revolutionary idea because for much of the last 150, 170 years or so, right the way back to the mid-18th century when, when Shakespeare became popular again, the idea is that you need to hear every single word of Shakespeare spoken clearly because it is poetry. It should be declaimed as such. These aren't characters ripping open their chests and sharing their hearts. These are works of literature that must be listened to in, and spoken in a particular way and spoken of in a particular way. So to suddenly have chaos, but that chaos be pointed at from the text itself, it was tremendously exciting. And, and, and yeah, you know, the, the button, I suppose, was that it worked dramatically as well. So I think whenever I'm exploring new approaches to Shakespeare, they're all well and good and interesting, and sometimes they're just that. They're just doing exploration. But if it comes from the text, and there's a decent and obvious argument for it rather than a crowbarred one, and then if in actuality, in rehearsal and performance, it, it, it flies, then, then it's really hard not to think that's an intentional device that we've stumbled on that, that's been, you know, had dust blown and sand blown over it for the last 400 years because because we lost track of, of their rehearsal and performance practice after the, um, uh, you know, after the Puritans burned down all the theaters in the mid 17th century. Well, if it is, if you're right, and if that is, if that is in the neighborhood of, of intention, I mean, I, that, those are the kind of things to me when I saw that, that I thought, that's why Shakespeare's still read today. That kind of stuff. <laughs> that's what it's like. That, I mean, you call it, Ben called it cacophony. I mean, it's chaos, but it's beautiful. It is music. And it's the, uh, uh, to quote you in your book, eat your heart out, Miles Davis, you know? Well, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, but then, you know, the only reason Miles Davis became who he became was because there was all of that ancestral jazz that was relatively solid form. And indeed, he played that sort of jazz too, and then was able to lift off in a way and improvise into the free form because his he didn't lose his audience. And, and I think, you know, 
Shakespeare is Shakespeare because of the giant's shoulders that he stands on and because he's playing around and improvising, but he's playing around and improvising in the human song. You know, he's, he's improvising and that's why it's perhaps universal because he isn't talking about what it is to be from England or Warwickshire or Britain. He's, he's managing to be, to reach holistically in every direction of the, of sphere of influence. Uh, it's, it's really quite impressive. I, I say this having worked and studied with him for so long, but it still impresses me. Now, there is a spectrum in terms of uh, folks that are, that are keeping the bard alive in that sort of household and family. There are cousins on both ends of the spectrum. There are those that uh, if you touch the words of Shakespeare, it's bad news and they will, mm-hmm. you know, they want you no longer invited to Thanksgiving. There are some, you know, and then there's the other side that wants <laughs> to like, you know, rap about it or do whatever to make it as easy as possible to, to a fresh person. So it's one big family. They're all at the table. You right. fall on one particular end of the spectrum, which is wanting to retain the words at all costs. And if you're going to, Shakespeare is universal and you can do all kinds of things with it, but the words mean a lot. And just from, I revisited your book after I heard that we were going to be able to do it. And it Mm -hmm. seems to me, it's not, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but in terms Mm of um, Mm -hmm. keeping the words, it isn't for you about sort of, uh, these are treasures that never be, should never be touched. And like, essentially they're in the glass cases and it's beautiful because it's beautiful and that's enough. But it seems to me that with how much you see in terms of intention in the medium and just how much there is there that to sort of bring down, you know, uh, I think I've heard you quote something to the effect of uh, instead of the to be speech, it's essentially like it, 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 it ended with like, should I live or should I kill myself? Some of that effect. Oh, right, just, yeah. But with w- w- even just this conversation, when you see the all, everything we've talked about, which is mostly medium, mm. we've really not talked about content. Is that is that about right? Is that does that sound familiar to you? Well, at this great feast, <laughs> uh, listening to you speak to it like that, I would either place and let's turn it into a, an Elizabethan comedy of manners or whatever you please. I would be the uh, like the Duke in Measure for Measure. I feel I would be the um, the host that disguises himself as the waiter and serves everybody, <laughs> no matter which end of the table that they're at. You know, like. Um, the reference to to be or not to be being translated down to shall I live or shall I die, which is essentially the the sort of uh, the modern translation books that you can find out there from Shakespeare, of Shakespeare, the Shakespeare for dummies or no fear Shakespeare or whatever you want to look at. You can do anything with Shakespeare. He's Teflon. You can set it Pericles on the moon, and I've seen it done. You can translate it into modern speak. You can adapt it for a modern setting in film or TV. And these works are still going to be there. The danger is, is when we ascribe our 20th and 21st century ideologies to them. And a lot of my dear friends and colleagues have very passionate things to say, uh, especially after last year, about plays, like, well, Shakespeare's race plays like Othello and Merchant of Venice. Right. And there's all sorts of things that can be said about those plays. The context of the time being one, but also there is no more or less Shakespeare in his race plays than there are in his other plays. And there is a very canny playwright that keeps himself and his beliefs and his ideologies really opaque and very difficult to determine. What he does continually do 
is hold the mirror up to us and asks us questions about ourselves and how we conduct ourselves as as humans. He, in the best storytelling ability, he does seem to step back from humanity somehow and ask us and force us to ask questions about some of the brilliant, beautiful, and some of the terrible things that we find ourselves doing whilst spending our brief time on this spinning rock. So I, I do feel that we fall into some danger when we bring him too close to us, when we enforce our 20th, 21st century ideologies onto these works, or when we feel lazy and don't want to do the little work that needs to be done to understand it the way that it is written and to translate it into to modern speak. And, and, and then there are other more sort of production-y things like some Shakespeare set, some settings for Shakespeare tend to reduce the frame rather than uh, zoom it out. Like there's a reason why Shakespeare's plays were performed on a, on a bare stage in a beautiful theatre. The story becomes timeless. Right. And when you set it in, I don't know, the First World War or the Second World War or any modern time, it, it highlights elements of that time, but also takes away all, all the others. And then, you know, if you watch a production of Henry V, and it's all very modern setting and everyone comes up to the king and, and hugs him uh, and claps him by the hand and, and, and holds onto his shoulder and that sort of thing. You are bringing a 20th or 21st century and very Western world idea of physicality and tactility. But the character is built off of the idea that the king was the mouthpiece through which God spoke. Right. And and as soon as you, as it were, put your hands on a, on, a, on a deity, then you are mortalizing them. So that's just an example, I suppose, or a few examples of how there are parts of the table that I am less reluctant to practice in myself, right? Because I feel that it does less justice to to these works. And by justice, I mean celebrating them for for what they are and what they are other than a great examination of the human condition and all the other things that we talked about. Like when you say like re respecting or doing justice to the words, there is a skill in a craft and it, it, that comes from learning how to take the words that he's written and pour so much of yourself, so much of your heart and soul into them. Like I said at the beginning about the sonnets and then sharing that mixture of of, of the, the shell of the idea in the heart that he's given with that's been filled like a, a chocolate sweet filled with deliciousness, filled with your self and your emotions and your experiences. And then you use the words and make them as image rich and meaningful to you as you possibly can. And that's how they spark into life in the hearer and then in the mind's eye of the audience. But you don't do that by just shouting them and you don't do that by muttering them and you don't do that by putting on an accent that isn't in some doesn't have some sort of connection to you because you're you're, you're putting filters in the way or obstacles in the way so there are no rules to shakespeare but there are a whole bunch of guidelines and there are ways that you can approach it that will allow them to be more easy for your uh, audience to interact with and there are ways that can obfuscate them and, and put him, make him feel farther away than, than ever. Um, I am a fan of all of it, and I love eating every part of that table, but I'm very much strip everything away, 
get a bunch of really great crafts folk that live for the speaking of poetry and of words and of storytelling. And you probably need a crown and a dagger. <laughs> and beyond that, you need a willing audience with a supple and inventive imagination. Now, our audience's imaginations have gotten lazier and lazier because we're handed stories on a CGI silver platter in the last 50 years or so. Um, very different from the radio audience of the mid-20th century. But those are the basic ingredients. And be, you, know, you could even strip it down even further. You just need a box and a street corner and the words and everything else will come. But, and, then, and then beyond that, you want to pile in loads of set and CGI and, and everything else, then that's fine too. It's not my bag, but, uh, but again, that's the brilliance of Shakespeare. You can, you can throw everything at him and he'll still be there going, all right, who's next? Perfect. Ben, I know you're on a deadline. So could you tell us maybe in, in light of that question, where would you send people as we all kind of do our, our best impression of the 16th century uh, and we're all under lockdown and, and there's probably not many theaters going currently. Where would you send people if you were, if they've listened to this interview, they believe now, where would you send them to sort of get an idea of, of the best of production? Like, like I have in mind something like Lerman's Romeo and Juliet. Do you have others to recommend? Oh, sure. You mean, uh, right. Uh, absolutely. I mean, Baz Lerman's Romeo plus Juliet uh, didn't tickle everyone's. Uh, fancies, but certainly did mine. I uh, really established what you can do with Shakespeare, keeping both plates spinning at the same time in terms of being fairly, you know, following the text and, and, and adapting quite heavily away from it too. I think there's an awful lot of exciting work happening in this new digital arts medium that we've encountered in the last year or so. There's nothing like necessity being the mother of invention. And there are some really interesting Shakespeare companies and, and just theater companies and art companies generally trying to wrangle and work out how to keep creating during this isolated time. And um, I, I think there's never been a better time in some respects to, if you live far from a theater or if you've never encountered Shakespeare in your life, there's a beautiful abundance of it being produced on a daily and weekly basis at the moment. Because artists got to art, actors got to act, and producers <laughs> like me got to produce too. We've been making stuff over at the ShakespeareEnsemble.com. I was a consultant creative producer on the weekly readings of Shakespeare that the show must go online did last year. They did the whole canon of Shakespeare every Wednesday night, uh, a different play for nine months last year throughout the, uh, the, the UK lockdowns. And I know that there are other companies doing all of the sonnets. Patrick Stewart did the sonnets. I as saw well. that. <laughs> I, uh, and, and, and that's the thing, you know, I, I couldn't necessarily say whether any of this work or, or indeed any of the films I grew up with or any of it is good nor bad. As Hamlet says, there is no good nor bad, but thinking makes it so. And I can't, I can, I can rave and, and shout about a production that I've loved, but you, the person sitting next to me might not be switched on by it at all. I feel the best, like I said at the beginning, best way into Shakespeare is to find a, a piece that resonates with you, a sonnet that resonates with you, to find the spark of your own enjoyment come alight, and then shine that path, that light down that path for others. You know, you, you won't fall in love with Shakespeare because of my love for Shakespeare. You, you, everyone, everyone needs to find their own path with it, I believe. And now, couldn't be a better time for 
for engaging with such a rich and diverse palette of offerings than this very difficult and, and isolated time of the last year. There's plenty out there. Go have a look. Okay. <laughs> what uh, Can you mention that website one more time? It's shakespeareensemble.com. Yeah. So you can find me at bencrystal.com. Um, I sometimes am on Twitter at, at bencrystal. The Shakespeare company that I've been working with for the last couple of years is called theshakespeareensemble.com. We made a virtual promenade theater show last year called What You Will. That's still available online for people to watch. And uh, if you go to YouTube, you can also look up The Show Must Go Online, which I was supporting last year. And they're the company that did the, the, the weekly readings of Shakespeare. Perfect. You want a sonnet before I go? Please, can you? Yeah, sure. You want an original pronunciation as well? Yeah, hit him with, hit him with the OP. Okay, so this is a reconstruction of the accent that they would have spoken in 400 years ago. Let's do, uh, let's have a little sonnet 18. Why not? It'll be familiar to a lot of people out there. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough wines do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lace hath all too short a date. Sometime too hot the eye of heaven shines, and often is his gold complexion dimmed, and every fair from fair sometime declines by chance or nature's changing course untrimmed. But thy eternal summer shall not fade, nor loose possession of that fair thou owest, nor shall death brag thou wanderest in his shade when in eternal lines to time thou growest. So long as men can breathe or eyes can see, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee. Perfect. Cheers, Ben. Thank you so much for the time, man. Cheers for having me, Jake. All the best. Okay, so the first clip you're going to hear is what we talked about in the episode when Ben said that Shakespeare, working with that 10-foot iambic pentameter, that not all of the dialogue will fulfill all of the 10 beats, so there's timing in it. And so in this clip, you'll hear them sort of pause, and what they're doing is waiting for the rest of the beats of the line. So you can even hear at some point Ben does the de-dum, 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 waiting, you know, they're essentially working on a metronome, and he will then show you how that doesn't fit for this particular scene of Hamlet, and then him overlaying it so that it does work. Enjoy. Um, there's one bit I'd like to show you before I skip onto the bright bit of the talk. Um, and I haven't actually explored this uh, in public before. I've written about it in a, in a series of books I wrote called Springboard Shakespeare. Um, and there's two things I want to share with you that uh, I, uh, I found someone referring to in a book 50 years ago, and uh, I've started to explore with my company. Um, Aslam, Jen, can you come back and duck down here with me? We're going to read a little bit of um, the end of Hamlet. This is the uh, grave scene with Ophelia. And uh, you'll notice, uh, if I can get the right button, there we go. You see these little things here? These are the missing beats. These are the, the lines that have less than 10 syllables in them and that we'll pause to try and make sense of. Now pile your dust upon the quick and dead, till of this flat a mountain you have made, to o'ertop old Pelion, or the skyish head a blue Olympus. What is he whose grief spares such an emphasis, whose phrase of sorrow conjure the wandering stars and makes them stand like wonder-wounded hearers? This is I, Hamlet the Dane. The devil take thy soul. Thou prayest not well. 
I pray thee, take thy fingers from my throat, sir, though I am not splinative and rash, yet have I something in me dangerous which let thy wiseness fear away thy hand. Pluck them asunder. Hamlet, Hamlet. Gentlemen. Gentlemen. Good my lord, be quiet. Why, I will fight with him upon this theme until my eyelids will no longer wag. Oh, my son, what theme? I loved Ophelia. Forty thousand brothers could not, with all their quantity of love, make up my son. What wilt thou do for her? Oh, he is mad, Laertes. Be done, be done. For the love of God, forbear him. Be done, be done. Come, show me what thou do. Would weep, would fight, would tear thyself. Would drink of Isle, eat a crocodile? I'll do it. Dost thou come into wine to outface me with leaping in her grave? When um, uh, we uh, were exploring this a couple of years ago, I, I, I was asked to go over to uh, Reno, Nevada, to be an artist in residence at the university there and to uh, help put together and lead the first uh, contemporary production of Hamlet in original pronunciation, which I am coming to. And we struggle putting this scene together because of all these pauses and these interruptions. And what I've been discovering of late is that Shakespeare, not content with getting his uh, characters and actors to come in on cue with each other, is it turns out, I think, that they got them to overlap with each other. So the, the idea of Shakespeare being beautiful poetry that every syllable should be heard, there's a very good chance it wasn't the case 400 years ago. Whose phrase of sorrow conjure the wandering stars and make them stand like wonder-wounded heroes. This is I, Hamlet the Dane. The devil take thy soul. Thou prayest not well. Pluck them asunder. Gentlemen, Gentlemen! I prithee take thy fingers from my throat. Sir, thou am not splinative and rash. Hamlet! Have I something in me dangerous Good which let thy wiseness fear away thy hand? Why, I will fight with him upon this theme until oh, my, my son, eyelids will theme? no longer wag. I love the Philia. Forty thousand brothers could not, with all their quantity of love, make up my son. What wilt thou do for her? Come, show me what thou do. Oh, would weep, would fight, would tear thyself, would drink up Isle, eat a crocodile? I'll do it. Dost thou God, come here to whine, to outface me with leaping in her grave? <laughs>